Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance. Avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the plague. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, I noticed uh, your tweet from the other day in which you mentioned that it was the 25th anniversary of your first ever ringside credential. So to that I say simply, A, congratulations on a quarter century of boxing writing. And B, you're old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, 25 years covering this sport, and uh, to steal a signature line from Bill Detloff, not rich yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I used to be the young guy on the boxing beat. Not not like one of the younger guys or whatever. I was the young guy for a couple of years there, like at least five years younger than anyone else on press row at a bunch of my early fights. But um no, I am, I am not the young guy on Press Row anymore. Uh, I will, however, always be the young guy on our podcast. Yes. No, no matter how this old I get, true. you will always be older than me, Karen. It's funny. I I don't feel old. I still feel young at heart. But then I try to stand up. And, uh, oh, right. Yes. Yes, I do feel old now when I, when I do that. But as long as I'm sitting here podcasting, eh, I'm still that kid I was 25 years ago, more or less. Yeah. I, I'm still in denial about it as well until occasionally sort of outside voices remind me of the passage of time. I was actually at the, the optometrist about a week or so ago mm. and uh, the, the optometrist was asking me, you know, whether I'd considered I, my eyes are all over, just not good. <laughs> okay. Again, the age, like the age thing. Right. And, um, and she asked me, Oh, have I ever considered using progressive bifocals? And, and she goes, of course the, the, bifocal range with you would be kind of at its at its most extreme because you're um yeah i mean you're somewhat on the older side <laughs> how 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 old approximately was this optometrist who was calling you somewhat actually, on the older side not much younger than me <laughs> okay. i guess actually right. so right. but then then uh just a couple of days later uh i'm i'm at the local walgreens and i'm just you know making small talk as one does and i'm like oh how's it going and uh the the person at the checkout is like yeah it's great i get to get to check you know finish work in like 45 minutes and sort of absent-mindedly i go ah noise and she stops she goes how do you know that (laughs) know what noise that's a young person thing yeah very loudly in the store she said Oh, well, I I know young people. <laughs> yes, I actually have young people living in my house. There you so, go. So I, there's a logical explanation for why I would hear words like noise and toit and things like that. <laughs> but uh, but you, yeah, you know, you're. But see, you still you pick things up. You're. I do. Keeping your finger on the pulse. Yes. Yes. Looking for my own. <laughs> right. I was going to say the pulse itself is fading. But your finger is on it. And irregular, uh, <laughs> from that. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. All right. Still, we're young enough to make it through uh, another episode of the podcast. And uh, one thing we won't be doing this week is recapping Saturday's clash between Connor Ben and Chris Eubank Jr. Because, as you will be fully aware, unless you've been living under a rock on Mars, not just living under a rock or living on Mars, but you'd have to be doing both, I think, to not be aware of the fact that it didn't happen. Uh, we will, however be examining the fallout of that whole situation and other shenanigans uh, involved in British boxing last week. Uh, We'll be looking ahead to a triumvirate of big fights taking place next week, including the return of a former heavyweight titleist, a rescheduled women's championship grudge match, and a rematch that very few were desperate to see. We will pay tribute to the career of the great Edward Joffrey. Eric will hit me with a new top five challenge. But first to Carson, California, where on Saturday night, Sebastian, the towering Inferno Fundora, remained undefeated with a wide, unanimous decision win over Carlos Acampo. Yeah, and this had its entertaining moments, but it was certainly a lot less spectacular and action-packed than the last time we saw Fundora fight when he got off the deck to stop Erickson Lubin in April. 
but maybe that was a good thing for Fundora. Mm. Yeah, that Lubin fight was nip and tuck, and Lubin was slightly ahead on the scorecards going into the conclusive ninth round, whereas this was much more straightforward for the towering Inferno. And stop the presses. The six foot six inch junior middleweight spent part of the fight standing tall and using his long jab to keep Ocampo at bay. That's something we famously hardly ever see from him. But in case we started to worry that he was changing his style and throwing away the exciting approach we've gotten used to, he reverted to type in the middle rounds, standing in close and exchanging with Ocampo. Ocampo, whose one professional defeat before Saturday came via first round knockout to Errol Spence, was determined to give as good as he got, and he smartly targeted Fundora's lean body whenever he could, but he simply couldn't get past Fundora's long arms for any extended period, and learned the hard way what a good infighter Sebastian is. After the eighth round, referee Jack Reese came to the corner and told Ocampo he didn't like his body language and that he might stop the fight unless Ocampo did a better job of defending himself and of producing meaningful offense. Suitably inspired, Ocampo had one of his best rounds in the ninth, although two rounds later, Reese was admonishing the Ocampo corner again, this time accusing them of deliberately stalling for time by spilling water in the corner and asking the California Commission to fine him. But Ocampo survived both opponent and referee and made it to the end, <laughs> although he lost by a wide margin by scores of 119-109, 118-110, and 117-111. Kieran, Last week, we asked what Fundora's ceiling might be. Did you see anything on Saturday to clarify your feelings about how far he could go? Not entirely. Uh, he still remains a little bit of an enigma to me. Uh, and it feels like, you know, notwithstanding how far he's progressed, he's still something of a work in progress, I think. But, you know, one thing that really registered with me on Saturday night is just what a calm personality he is. I, I mean, he's always been very chill, whenever we've talked with him, which we've done quite a lot this year, you know, he smiles as he gently bats away the inevitable questions about his height. And he's also like that every time he speaks with Jim Gray, I've noticed, like whether it's an hour to go before the fight, whether it's in the immediate aftermath, he's very, very chill, low key. Um, his tone of voice never changes. His demeanor never changes. And it occurs to me that it's actually a lot like that in the ring too. And that might seem an odd thing to say, given that seesaw battle he had with Lubin the last time out and the fact that he likes to to dig in and get in close. But it just feels that, I think, it just occurred to me that maybe his biggest strength isn't his height or his long arms or the torque he gets on his punches. It's that he's he's just a really relaxed dude. And I, and I think he's really relaxed in the ring, even while he, he's swapping all these punches with folks. And I, and I think we've said it many times before, if you're able to be relaxed in the ring at all times, it's such an advantage because you're using up so much less energy. You're able to move better. You have better stamina. You can think so much more clearly. And I also came away a little bit wondering whether we haven't quite yet seen everything there is to see of Sebastian Vendora. I, I, I came away thinking, like I said, he's a bit of a work in progress, but I feel that maybe there's something in reserve there. And the reason I said that it was this it was kind of an interesting performance to me because he was in such total control. The fight was at long range when he wanted it to be at long range. It was 14 close when he wanted it 14 close. He completely dictated the, the nature of that fight. He didn't win every moment of it or every round, but it was clearly the fight that he wanted to fight at the time that he wanted to fight it. It, it was in that respect sort of a more mature outing from him. Um, I still don't know how he'd fare against Jamel Charlo. I'd still definitely make him the underdog there. I'm not sure I'd favor him against Tony Harrison either, but he's up there. I, I'm not certain he's quite world championship caliber yet. He still gets hit a bit too much. Mm -hmm. um, when he does decide to jab, I'd like to see him put a little more juice behind it. I think it could be a really good jab if he does. He could use it as a real weapon rather than as the afterthought that he used it uh, as on Saturday. And I'd also like to see him progress to the point where it's not just one or the other, like this round I'll jab, this round I'll slug. It would be nice if he were able to move a bit more seamlessly between the two and, and, and maybe use more of the area of the ring in, in the process. I think it's almost there for him. But I came away thinking that maybe the ceiling's a little bit higher than where he is at. And, and, and I don't know if this is because we talked to him so much and and so I kind of am rooting for the guy, but I'm, I'm genuinely intrigued to see how far he can go. I might have a feeling that he might be able to go a bit farther 
than I thought. I just don't know that he's ready for the Charlo level yet. And it might be to his, his advantage, the fact that Charlo and Sue are going to be meeting each other in January. Maybe there'll be a rematch if that's a good fight. Mm. I wonder if he could actually do with just that little bit more seasoning. And then maybe he's actually going to end up being pretty darn good and a pretty good championship level kind of fighter. Um, we also wondered aloud last week, we talked about the fight with Lubin, and we wondered if, is this going to be a bit of a letdown fight? Because that was so spectacular. Is he going to attract new fans who are going to tune in and then maybe be a bit underwhelmed? What do you think about that? Did it live down to those fears? And while you're at it, anything else you'd like to add about the fight or the referee or anything? <laughs> uh, well, I'll get to the referee shortly. Um, I thought you might. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think we were correct to, to isolate that angle that Fundora was going to have a hard time living up to the expectations set by the Lubin fight. Not just how exciting it was, but, but more to the point, the idea that, well, now you got to take this guy seriously as an elite 154-pounder. When, and this goes along with the timeline you were talking about, maybe actually there's still some work to do before he's truly mm. elite. So, like, I wouldn't say he had a letdown in the ring at all. You know, he won convincingly. And I wouldn't say the fight was any kind of big disappointment entertainment-wise. It was a B, maybe, something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you tuned in with the expectation that, whoa, this Fundora kid is going to be the next big thing in boxing... I think you as a viewer might have been slightly let down by this more workmanlike performance. Mm. Um, so other things for me to comment on. First, I'll do the tweet of the week. Uh, it comes from at Trotman Boxing. Uh, he seems to be British, I think, although I really don't know much about uh, the person behind this account. But he had a nice, short, to the point, snarky tweet that I saw on Sunday morning. <laughs> Here it is. Just waking up. Who won the Jack Reese fight? That's pretty good. Um, this was the side of Jack Reese that I hate when he goes, get off my lawn and not yeah. in an adorable curmudgeon kind of way, just in a grumpy a-hole kind of way. This was the worst of him in that regard since the Andre Ward, Edwin Rodriguez fight, uh, when he threatened to withhold their purses for fighting a little dirty, uh, which, by the way, he has no freaking power right. to <laughs> withhold their purses. And in my opinion, he ruined what I was finding to be a fun, dirty scrap uh, and got them fighting clean. It wasn't as entertaining. Um, here he was <laughs> telling the commission how to do their job and levy fines and... His threatening to stop the fight got Al Bernstein apoplectic, which, boy, you really have to do something crazy <laughs> to draw that out of Al. Like, I'm fine with a ref communicating with a corner, you know, telling him, got to show me something, I'm close to stopping the fight. But specifically judging the power of Ocampo's punches yeah. and saying, basically, you're not getting enough oomph on your shots, I'm going to stop it if I don't see you showing me you're punching hard enough. I've never seen that before, and... Could you imagine if he'd actually stopped it, not off Ocampo taking a big punch, but off Ocampo landing some punches and Reese, Reese steps in. Nope, not enough snap on those shots. Arm, their arm punches, fight's over. Um, and I don't think I was quite as annoyed as Al, but I was annoyed. And uh, so excellent tweet there about Reese from at Trotman Boxing. Um, I also have a couple of quick runner-up tweets worth mentioning. Okay. Uh, one was from the just-mentioned Al Bernstein. He retweeted a photo of Sebastian and his sister Gabriella at the final pre-fight press conference and tweeted, These two look like they could be here for a math club competition, <laughs> but in reality, they are both fierce warriors in the ring. Um, you kind of have to see the outfits, but if you've ever seen the way Sebastian dresses, you, yeah. know, you know, glasses, khakis, Gabriella was dressed similarly, she had her glasses on, Al nailed it with the math club comp there. Um, and by the way, we should mention that Gabriella won a unanimous 10-round decision over Naomi Reyes on the streaming portion of the undercard to advance her record to 9-0 with four KOs. Um, and I have one more tweet to mention. Virgil Ortiz Jr. tweeted, Fundora just walked out to Metallica, guaranteed W. Um, so... <laughs> When I heard Fundora coming out to the strains of Wherever I May Roam, it certainly got my attention, uh, and then Ortiz being into it, and I'll note that Metallica is Eli Raskin's favorite non-Springsteen division artist, so I guess Metallica has really found this next generation, according to the sample size of three that I'm working off of here. <laughs> um, Fundora also had the number 34 on his trunks, which they explained was a tribute to Fernando Valenzuela. Is Sebastian Fundora the exact same age as me? Did he grow up in the 80s? 
<laughs> it's he's got some interesting reference points going Metallica and Fernando Valenzuela. Um, and I have one last observation, not related to a tweet, an actual boxing observation. Uh, I jotted down at the end of the third round that Fondora doesn't look comfortable boxing at a distance behind the jab. Maybe he'd be better off against Acampo just getting in there and fighting. And sure enough, the very next round, he reverted to type. It was almost like he was saying to his dad, okay, I tried it. Yeah. Uh, these rounds, they were kind of close. Maybe I'm up 2-1. Maybe I'm down 2-1. I'm not loving it. It's time to be me. Uh, and then, you know, with the fight in the bag, he did get back to jabbing again those last two rounds. But rounds four through certainly like six, at least, were were very fun, Carson, California-worthy kind of rounds. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, and it's interesting that he, I don't think he even waited for Jim to ask a question after the fight before launching into an explanation of why he was jabbing and doing all of that kind of stuff. It did It did feel I had a similar thought. Like, uh, he was like, well, tried it. Didn't work. <laughs> right. And it's not like it really didn't work. It's it, not like it well, backfired. It, it, it just it just isn't who he is, apparently. Yeah. 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 All right. And the co-main event, middleweight Carlos Adames produced the performance of the night. Uh, he exploded into action in the third round, rocking Juan Macias Montiel and prompting referee Ray Corona to stop the contest at two minutes 37 of the third. With the win, Adames, who climbs to 22-1 and one with 17 KOs, proclaimed himself the number one middleweight and made it clear he wants a title shot next. So, Eric... Always have to ask you these questions. What did you think of the stoppage and Adamus' performance? And how do you think he'd fare against a Jamal Charlo or a Gennady Golovkin? So in terms of the performance, hard to say anything negative about that performance, uh, you know, unless you want to boo the dull first round as the impatient, perhaps yes. spoiled Carson crowd did. Um, but, you know, certainly starting in the second round, Adamus threw beautiful long jabs from the southpaw stance. Then they started rumbling in the third and his hand speed allowed him to separate himself from Montiel in the exchanges. And then, boy, was the southpaw right hook on point. He moved Montiel with it a time or two before landing the big one that set up the finish. Adamas looks like a legit talent. He seems to have made some strides since losing closely to Patrick Teixeira a few years ago. This was a great win. Couldn't have asked for any more than this, especially after Montiel just went the distance with Jamal Charlo. The stoppage, it's close. It, it was maybe a tad premature, but he looked, if not trapped and defenseless on the ropes, at least on the verge of becoming trapped and defenseless on the ropes at the moment that the ref jumped in. I think it's one of those situations where if Montiel had been a champion defending his title, I'd be pissed about him getting stopped that way. But as the B-side in a non-title fight or, mm. you know, an interim title fight, which is a non-title fight for my purposes, you know, here in this spot, I don't mind the stoppage so much. Mm. Um, so how would Adamas fare against a Charlo or a Golovkin? In case you haven't picked up on it uh, in recent weeks, uh, I think any world-class middleweight is live against Triple G at this point. Yeah. Um, Adamas's speed could certainly cause the 40-year-old version of Golovkin real problems. That's a toss-up, and Adamas ought to take that fight if offered it, even for short money, because it can really propel his career forward. Charlo, who's in his prime, that's a tougher ask. Um, I'd say Charlo is the guy to beat right now at 160. So I'd favor him over Adamas, but it's not a mismatch. It's not an unreasonable fight. It's a big step up, but I think Adamas is ready to test himself on the top level. So he may as well take that fight, too, if offered it, uh, though I would consider him the underdog against Charlo. Mm. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount+. Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie. She's the can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and $15,000 a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Let's go! It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. In the opening bout, Fernando Martinez and Jerwin Ancajas locked horns again in a rematch of a February clash that Martinez won in an upset. That first fight was tremendously exciting, even as it ultimately became a clear Martinez win. This one was just as clear a Martinez win, but it certainly lacked the excitement and drama of their first encounter. 
Ankaha started okay. He seemed in the fight for the first half, but he simply couldn't hold off Martinez's relentless aggression as Martinez wound up winning a unanimous decision by scores of 118-110 twice and 119-109 to retain the junior bantamweight belt he took from Ancajas last time. Martinez remains unbeaten at 15-0 with eight stoppages. Ancajas, who had been the longest reigning title holder in boxing prior to losing to Martinez the first time, falls to 33-3-2 with 22 knockouts. Kieran, Ancajas was a big favorite going into the first fight with Martinez, but he's now been beaten comprehensively by him twice. Is Martinez better than we originally thought? Is Ancajas not as good? Or does Martinez just have his number? It might be all of the above somewhat, honestly. I mean, as you mentioned, Ancajas' lengthy reign. But let's be honest, in a division that includes and has included Roman Gonzalez, Juan Francisco Estrada, Carlos Cuadras, Frisiquetza, Rungvisay, and Aubame Rodriguez, it's the definition of a paper title, right? Um, in a different age, he would have been regarded as this fifth or sixth or seventh best guy in the division and the expectations of him would have been less. Um, and his quality of opposition over that spell, it, it certainly doesn't stand up to any of the, the big four or the big five. But I also don't want to dismiss a guy just because he loses a couple of times, especially when he loses to the same guy. He's still a good fighter in Carlos, and he's still defeated some solid foes. Um, although arguably nobody of the quality of Joe Arroyo, who he beat to win the f- title in the first place. I, I do think Martinez is all wrong for him. Um, you know, when we were previewing the fight last week, I mentioned that I thought that what Ancajas needed to do was to box and move and try to negate Martinez's relentless pressure. But that isn't really his strength. And he tried. He did try that. And he did, as you mentioned, quite well for the first few rounds. But he just didn't have the skill set to keep doing it and to keep Martinez at bay. Um, I don't see any reason to believe that Ancajas can't continue to be a top 10 guy in the division. Um but it feels like he'll lose to Martinez nine times, maybe nine and a half times out of ten. Um, but I do think we overlook Martinez. Um, I'll break the fourth wall a little bit here. If, if listeners sometimes think during our previews, wow, these guys know a lot about these obscure fighters, it's because Steve Farhood compiles great notes for us in advance of every broadcast. And as he said in his notes about Martinez, just because a fighter hasn't beaten anyone noteworthy, it doesn't mean he can't beat anyone noteworthy. And... Um, I do think that because Martinez didn't have that a track record going into that first fight with Ancajas that we dismissed it. I certainly did. But the guy was an Olympian. He's got a good grounding in the game. Some of his fundamentals are a bit wonky. He squares up way too much. Someone will take advantage of that. But he's so strong and so relentless that he's going to be an extremely tough out for anyone. I'd make him an underdog against Chocolatito and Bam, largely because I think they're good enough to expose the mistakes he makes. But... Honestly, not by a huge amount. Um, I think Martinez might actually be very good, and I think we might have another very good 115-pounder on our hands. Yeah, that's that's the sense that I get, that uh, this guy has a lot of talent, but but as you point out, the, the mistakes that he makes, there might be a, a fighter at the elite level that's going to expose those and take advantage of those, and maybe Ancajas at this point in his career just doesn't have what it yeah. takes to do that. Um, so there was a slight change in our picks competition as a result of this triple header. Uh, I led 67 to 64 going in. We each picked up one point for Fundora outpointing Ocampo. Uh, we had both predicted a stoppage and one point for Adamas knocking out Montiel. We both predicted a unanimous decision win. I picked Martinez to beat Ancajas by stoppage, and you said it would be a split decision. So you get two points to my one. And so the gap has closed ever so slightly, and I now lead 70 to 68. I'm sure that's where I went. Yeah, it's a little close. <laughs> yeah, you're making your move too soon. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Right. I mean, I came flying out of the blocks earlier and gassed out at the midway right. point. So, you know, we'll yeah, see how you it You might goes. be catching your second wind at just the right yeah, time. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Uh, enough post-fight analysis. Let's get into some pre-fight analysis. Uh, as you mentioned at the top of the show, we have three major fight cards next weekend. The first of them is one we've already previewed. Uh, at the O2 Arena in London, Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall clash for the undisputed middleweight championship, while in the co-feature, Michaela Mayer and Alicia Baumgartner meet in a junior lightweight unification. The card was originally scheduled for September 10th, but was postponed, pushed back five weeks following the death of the Queen two days beforehand. Uh, Kieran, you broke down these fights the first time we thought they were about to happen. Have your feelings about how the main event and the co-main are likely to unfold changed over the past month? And which boxers, if any, do you think will be most advantaged or disadvantaged by the delay? 
Yeah, I'm still very much in two minds about the main event. I, I have a very hard time calling it. I can absolutely see Marshall's, Marshall keeping Shields at a distance and cracking her with power shots from outside and Shields struggling to get anything going. But I can also see Clarissa reminding us of her class and, and, and giving Marshall a boxing lesson and once again turning to us all and saying, you know, when are you going to stop doubting me? Uh, you know, the concern that I have had about this from Shields' perspective is, like as I mentioned before, the fact that she's become a bit of a part-time boxer these days. Well, Marshall's really up to her game, both in terms of the quantity of her bouts and the quality of her performances. So in that respect, I kind of wonder if the delay will benefit Shields, because I just think that the more repetition she has, the more she gets back into the swing of things, the more time she has to work on that muscle memory in the gym, the better it, it will be for her. Um the co-main event, I also had some trouble picking when we discussed it a month or so ago. But as I've thought about it more, the more I lean toward Mayer here. Uh, Baumgarten is very good, but Mayer is a first-rate talent, does have the advantages in size and in big fight experience, and I suspect also in skill. But here I do wonder if the delay may slightly disadvantage her. She is the larger fighter. Mm. Um, she might struggle just that little bit in keeping the weight off, but... This is all marginal stuff, right? These are we're talking really marginal gains here. All four are first class professional athletes and they're gonna come into this fight as they were planning to come into it five weeks ago. Uh but I'm also a little curious, you know, when we checked the odds, well, you checked the odds when we previously previewed the cards, Shields Marshall was a literal, a true pick'em. Uh, Maya was a favorite over Baumgartner. Has there been any change in the intervening few weeks? Uh, no significant shifts. Um, I recommend any sports bettors shop around, you know, check several sports books, make sure you're getting the best price. But um, just using DraftKings as an example for this card without having shopped around carefully, uh, I see that Shields is minus 120 and Marshall is minus 105, which is about where it was last time. I think mm. it might have been minus 115 and minus 110, if I'm remembering mm. correctly. But either way, close to a pick em. You still can't get plus money on either one of them. Um, Mayer uh, is a minus 270 favorite. Baumgartner is at plus 210. I think those were the exact same numbers mm. that I had seen in September. The bet on this card that I like most, um, I actually bet it the first time around, and it had to be refunded, but I plan to bet it again is Shields Marshall to go the distance at minus 240. And I will shop around before I bet that. Maybe I'll find a slightly better price. But at that price of minus 240, if I believe it's 71% or above likely to go the full 10, then I'm getting value at that price. And I'd say I'm about 80% confident this will be a distance fight. Um, we've talked many times about how Clarissa is not a puncher and the two-minute rounds have really limited yep. her KO percentage. Now, Marshall is a puncher, but in S.H.I.E.L.D., she's facing someone so much more technically sound and defensively responsible as a boxer than anyone else she's faced. So uh, I just don't see much chance of this not going to the cards. But, you know, as a better, even if my hunch is that S.H.I.E.L.D. should get the better of Marshall... I don't want to leave my money in the hands of the judges in London. So mm. that's why I'm inclined to just bet it to go the distance and then not have to worry about who the scorecards favor. Mm, indeed. All right. So that's the main action in Britain. In Australia, meanwhile, it's rematch time as Devin Haney defends his lightweight championship against George Cambosis, whom he outpointed very handily when they first met in June. Uh, Eric, I'm not sure anyone outside of the Cambosis family wanted to see this again. Uh, Heine was just so clearly superior the first time around. Do you have any particular interest? And really, can you think of anything at all that Cambosis can do to even make this fight closer, let alone turn it around? Uh, in terms of interests here, not much. Uh, on a Saturday on which, as we have discussed, uh, I have serious life distractions and mm -hmm. all of my boxing watching may end up having to wait until Sunday. This is one fight that, even though it's for a lineal championship and it involves a pound-for-poundish kind of fighter, I'm probably okay with having the results spoiled and deciding after the fact how much of it I need to watch. Um, look, it could be more competitive than the first time, in part because it would be hard to be less competitive than the first time. Um, but my concern and, and, and much of my lack of interest is based on the fact that Haney seemed exactly the wrong style for Cambosos the first time. And also, I feel like we should be questioning whether Cambosos was ever all that good or just had the night of his life to squeak mm -hmm. by 
against a badly compromised Teofimo Lopez. I hate to play that game, you know, to put asterisks yeah. on a great win, but remember how ordinary Cambosis looked against yeah. Mickey Bay and Lee Selby? I mean, not bad, but ordinary. A, a guy who seemed to have zero chance against a talent like Teofimo Lopez. And then he was that same guy pretty much against Haney. Uh, and, and he beat a Teofimo who fought with serious health issues, not to mention outside the ring distractions. And that's why, actually, when I hear Devin Haney getting pissy with people about not being on their pound-for-pound lists, you know, he has every right to feel like he should be on there. I would actually be more alarmed if he wasn't insisting he was one of the best fighters in the world. But the problem is that Haney's resume just isn't that strong yet if George Cambosos is the best he's beaten. I know that Cambosos beat the man who beat the man, and then Haney beat him handily. So, you know, that's great, but... Everyone on my pound-for-pound pound list has beaten someone a full notch above George Cambosos. Um, but so, anyway, your question of whether Cambosos can produce a different result. Um, first, I'll note that two of the scorecards in Australia were kind of close-ish last time. So I guess there's a tiny chance of shenanigans to sweat out. Um, but basically, I see his chance as mostly just being, can he catch Haney one time with that punch he doesn't see? Jorge Linares almost did. Uh, we know Haney can be wobbled. Cambosos is not without power. Um, if he can walk Haney into the perfect shot that he doesn't see coming, if Haney makes a mistake, sure, anything is possible. But otherwise, nothing should look all that different. Cambosos isn't going to outbox Haney. And if he aggressively goes after him, I think Haney is equipped to deal with that quite nicely. So I'm bracing for another ho-hum affair like last time. Mm. Uh, so that covers London and Australia. Closer to home, we welcome the return of the bronze bomber, Deontay Wilder, who is without a win in 35 months and hasn't fought in 12 months since suffering his second defeat to Tyson Fury. Wilder takes on Robert Hellenius at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn on Fox Pay-Per-View. Kieran, Hellenius is 31-3 and with 20 KOs. He has wins a decade ago, mind you, over the likes of Derek Chisora, Sergei Lyakovich, and Samuel Peter. And then the two more recent wins over Adam Kaunachki that earned him this opportunity. But along the way, he's fallen short against Dillian White, Gerald Washington, and Johan Duopa. The latter of those two qualify, in my mind, as particularly bad losses. So mm -hmm. is he the perfect comeback opponent for a Wilder who, for all his outward self-confidence, probably needs to rebuild his confidence in the ring a little? Yeah, in theory, I think so. Um, you know, I think, as I said at the time, when Helenia scored that first win over Konachki, I was surprised to discover he was actually still fighting because we hadn't heard much from him for such a long time. And like you said, that sequence of wins that he has is a decade in the rearview mirror now. If Wilder's on song and at the top of his game and perhaps physically recovered from, you know, after taking a year out, he should be able to not only win, but also knock Helenius out and quite possibly early. Uh, but, the, you know, there are still the question marks. Uh, how much did that trilogy with Fury, and particularly the last two fights, take out of him? Um, he sounds much better emotionally uh, uh, now than he did in the aftermath of the second bout. But they were physically punishing affairs. Uh, the other thing with Wilder is he's always been vulnerable to big guys who can back him up a little. Wilder just can't fight going backward. And uh, even Hellenius could do that. He is a big dude. He's got some solid boxing skills. But... Wilder does have that big right hand, and I think he's theoretically um, a much better all-round fighter than Hellenius. But even with that, you know, even if he is struggling at times against against Hellenius, even if he's struggling to get in his groove a little bit, if he's rusty or not quite the same, he's got that massive equalizer, and I would think he should be able to find the big finish at some point. Yeah, agreed. All right, uh, time now for the week's news, and the main event sees us return to Britain, where the boxing scene over the past few days was dominated by the controversy that swirled around the Conor Ben Chris Eubank Jr. catchweight contest. On Wednesday, the Daily Mail tabloid broke the news that Ben had tested positive for the drug clomiphene, a female fertility drug that is banned by the World Anti-Doping Association because it boosts testosterone levels, but that the camps both agreed to proceed with the contest. Promoter Eddie Hearn insisted that the fight would go ahead because the test was administered by VADA, whereas the British Boxing Board of Control relied on results collected by United Kingdom Anti-Doping, or UCAD. He maintained that stance even when the BBBFC declared, shortly after the Daily Mail report, 
that the bout should not proceed, quote, as it is not in the interests of boxing, and for 24 hours attempted to salvage the contest before conceding defeat and announcing that the fight had been postponed. All of this drowned out the news that negotiations for Tyson Fury and the Joshua were finally over. Supposedly. I mean, it's Fury. Take it with a grain of salt. But he's reportedly lined up to take on Derek Chisora or Mahmoud Char instead. And also the news that the British board nixed a proposed bout between Daniel Dubois and Lucas Brown. So, Kieran, what do you make of all this? Was it a bad week for British boxing because of the failed tests, the attempts to avoid doing the right thing and the proposed mismatches? Or was it a good week because the right decisions were ultimately made? I feel, you know, to focus on the Ben Eubank thing, unless this results in some kind of changes in the governance of boxing in the country, it feels like it was unquestionably a bad week. Like according to Dan Raphael, Ben submitted a urine test on September 1st and it came back positive on September 23rd. Um, and then there was well over a week um, before there was any public acknowledgement. I mean, close to two weeks, really, uh, acknowledgement of the situation or comment on it. What was the boxing board doing in the interim if the two camps apparently knew of the test and they'd had discussions in which they both agreed to go ahead with the bout? Eddie Hearn said over the, the weekend that the board knew well in advance of the Daily Mail report. So was it coincidence that they only issued a statement and acted in the immediate aftermath of that report? Were they spurred into action by its publication? Um, this is the same body, let us not forget, that did not inform Oscar Rivas of a positive test result by opponent Dillian White till after mm. the fact. Um, we still don't know what action, if any, the board took over reports of Tyson Fury failing a test several years ago. Remember that whole story with the pig farmer who claimed he was paid to lie about providing Fury with contaminated boar meat before right. he withdrew his allegations? We still don't know anything about that. The British board is just far too opaque for my liking. I understand there are medical privacy laws and all of this, um, but it all just contributes to a sense that not everything is as it should be or above board. Um, you know, Ben obviously said, claimed that he's clean and that he's shocked, but he didn't offer any explanations as to how he would have produced this positive result. And unless there's been some kind of horrible mix up somehow, I don't know what explanations he could offer. This isn't the kind of thing that can find its way into supplements or steaks. There's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no way to ingest this accidentally. And anyway, it doesn't matter because the substance is banned by the right. World Anti-Doping Authority at all times, in competition or out. Not only because it provides a testosterone boost itself, but by doing that, it can mask testosterone loss as a result of other PDUs. So, man, when we previewed the fight, we said we were concerned about what this could do to Ben, you know taking on such a bigger, more experienced man at this this stage in his career. What I certainly hadn't anticipated was that the damage that would be done would be not to his health, but his reputation. Right. Um, you know, just listen to what the likes of, you know, ex-boxers, guys like Ricky Hatton and Carl Frampton and Tony Bellew have had to say about it. Bellew is saying, you know, if you're a drug cheat, you should be banned for life. They have not been kind to Ben or the situation. Um, Eddie Hearn's been the easy target in all of this, and to some extent deservedly so. Yeah, he's a promoter. It's his job to get his fighters paid and keep the event alive. But we have to stop treating PED use in boxing as if it's just this mild inconvenience to be dealt with the same way as missing weight by a pound or so. Um, he, you know, he, he is claiming that the board Im acted improperly by refusing to sanction the bout without suspending Ben. I get his process concerns, but the immediate action required was to address that fight and to do it as early as possible. Um, it did expose that Eddie's brazenly hypocritical on the issue of PEDs, yes. how bad a PED, failing a PED test is, and whether you take VADA seriously depends on whether you're one of Eddie's fighters or not. Um, but, you know, he's a promoter, and if frank hypocrisy were a quite disqualifying factor, Bob Aram would have been out of the business decades ago. Uh, I do understand his wanting to defend his fighter and ensure that his fighter gets due process. That's, that's reasonable. But... Uh, really, with the exception of Eubank Jr., who did everything that he had to do, um, nobody comes out of this particularly well. And the tragedy of it all is that unless Ben is suspended for a lengthy period, which is possible, it's probably just made this matchup even more inevitable and even bigger. There's a reason that they said this is just postponed, not cancelled. Um, what, what do you think? You think much the same or what? Yeah, a lot of my thoughts do overlap with yours. I mean, the, the main thing for me here is, okay, boxers take PEDs sometimes, nothing too out of the ordinary there, mm. and they get caught on occasion. Also, 
not that unusual. Mm. But the lengths of this effort to go ahead with the fight anyway, and not just that. In this case, the effort, it seems, to cover it up for several weeks and hope nobody finds out, that is just really shameful. I'm not as much of a hardliner as some are on PED use because it's so tricky to know where to draw the line. Uh, you know, is it okay to use stuff to recover from injury? Uh, I remember in early days of PED use, people making the the point of uh, using as an example, like LASIK surgery. Is that performance enhancing? I mean, obviously <laughs> that's on the other side of the line for most of us, but it just r- shows you that the line does get blurry. There aren't easy answers and clear places to draw the line, but the rules are the rules. So if this substance is on the banned list and you've agreed to do this testing and you get caught, right. this attempt seemingly by both sides to just ignore the rules and the result of the test, this is where it gets dark for me, where yeah. we see people behaving not at a level of standard boxing seediness, but at a level below that standard, which is really saying something. Um, so that's my quick two cents. That I'm, There should be serious investigations into... Sorry for the political cliche here, but who knew what and when did they know? Right. Um, I mean, Chris Eubank Sr. was distancing himself from this several weeks ago, which has led people to speculate that everyone has known for quite a while and everyone but Eubank Sr. was just going along with it. I guess even Sr. could have been more outspoken than he was. Um, I definitely don't think this is a one week story, that this is something that has yeah. come and gone. I think we may be talking about the cover up here for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, like you said, this could have drowned out the Fury Joshua situation. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like we called that whole thing from the get go. I'm not sure this was ever a very serious proposal. And I've, that Fury's constant updates and pressure campaign, I, I think we're less about trying to get the fight done than getting attention and trying to make Joshua look bad. If he were consistent, he'd be putting the same public pressure campaign on Derek Chisora or Mamu Chara now. So why isn't he doing that? Um, you know, our, Bob Aram, Fury's US promoter, accused Hearn of dragging his feet and not wanting the fight. And yeah, like we said at the beginning, maybe that was Hearn's intention from day one. Right. But by the same token, in this case, Eddie's correct to say details take time to work out. And Aram knows that. These big fights don't get done overnight, and they certainly don't get done. As Stephen was explaining to us last week, if one side is conducting the negotiations in public, especially if he's doing it through a series of completely contradictory statements. Um, So I don't know if this was ever a truly serious undertaking, and I'm glad that we stopped updating and thinking about it a couple of episodes back. Um, It's just worth revisiting just to wrap the whole thing up, really. But like you said, good thing Tyson Fury can fight. Right. (laughs) Yes. All right. The uh, co-main event in the news segment concerns the passing of one of the great figures in the history of the sport. Edward Joffrey, universally regarded as the greatest boxer ever to come out of Brazil, died last week, age 86. Joffrey, a former bantamweight and featherweight world champ, was a 1956 Olympian, turned pro in 57, boxed until 1976, and was elected to the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1992. Eric, anything to add about the Hall of Famer? Well, obviously, he was before my time, uh, though I've seen some highlights. But people who were around when he was fighting, nothing but praise for the greatness of Edder Joffrey. And in the 1960s, if you're talking about pound for pound best fighter of the decade, anyone you ask who was around then, it's either Edder Joffrey or Muhammad Ali. Pretty good company to be in mm. there. Um, the key things to know about Joffrey, he compiled a record of 72, 2, and 4 with 50 KOs. So that's very few losses in 78 fights and a pretty high number of knockouts for a lighter weight fighter. Just those two losses and just one fighter who beat him, a fellow Hall of Famer fighting Harada, defeated him twice, both in Japan, both competitive decisions, ending a five-year Bantamweight title reign. And then Joffrey retired in 1966 and stayed retired for more than three years before, at age 33, he decided to make a comeback that surely seemed like a bad idea to most at the time, but he had 25 more fights and won them all, including claiming a featherweight belt at age 37, which got him onto our top five list a while back of the greatest career comebacks. Um, fun fact, Edder Joffrey was a vegetarian long before that was a semi-common you thing. Know, I didn't know that. Yeah, long wow. before he, there were impossible burgers and such to make <laughs> vegetarianism easier. Uh, uh, and also... Um, I believe he became the oldest living world champion after Tony DeMarco died last year. Uh, And now here's a twist. As best my research shows, 
the designation of oldest living champion now goes to fighting Harada. Well, was well. 79. Um, anyway, by any measure, one of the true all-time greats, RIP, Edder Joffrey. Absolutely. Uh, a few other quick news items about which I don't think we really need to offer much comment. Uh, rising Kazakh middleweight Janabek Alim Kanuli will be taking on Denzel Bentley on November 12th on ESPN Plus at the Palms in Las Vegas. Julio Cesar Martinez will defend his flyweight title December 3rd on DAZN against McWilliams Arroyo in a rematch of an abbreviated slugfest from last November, which ended in a third round no contest after both men had hit the deck. Former junior featherweight titleist Brandon Figueroa was arrested on suspicion of driving while intoxicated in Westlaco, Texas last Sunday. Amanda Serrano has been in her native Puerto Rico helping distribute supplies in the wake of the devastation caused by Hurricane Ian, so much respect to her for that. And we have a change atop the next showbox card coming up on October 21st at Bally's Atlantic City. Ali Ismailov tested positive for COVID-19 and had to withdraw from his fight with Hot Rod Kalajic. And replacing that as the main event will be Isaiah Steen versus Sena Agbeko, both Showbox alums, in a super middleweight 10-rounder. Like I said, a bunch of items there, probably not worthy of your analysis. Uh, But we'll finish with something that definitely is. The International Boxing Hall of Fame has sent out ballots for the next class of inductees. After the massive trilogy of classes inducted earlier this year, The slam dunks in the modern fighters category have been cleared off the ballot, and there are three new names, as there are every year, but they're not big stars compared to Floyd and Roy and Bernard and Klitschko and some of the other recent no-brainers. This year's newcomers are Arthur Abraham, Omar Narvaez, and Michael Nunn. Uh, Kieran, is this an opportunity for some folks who've been waiting their chance to get in? Any other names leap out at you from your ballot? So yeah, I hope this does provide a chance for some of the those who've gotten caught in the backlog to get in. I, I'd like to see, and I suspect we will see Tim Bradley get in mm-hmm. this year, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Carl Frotch join mm-hmm. him. Um, I, I'm sure, like you, I, I'm pretty sure we've had this conversation. We'll be hoping Rafa Marquez gets mm-hmm. in. Um, I, I hate that he isn't in. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I know that you haven't been as high on him as I as me, but I might well vote for Ivan Calderon again. Uh, I, I voted for him in the past. Um, I also, as I know you do, vote for observers and non-participants, and lordy, these two ballots are absolutely stacked. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I'd argue against any of the non-participants who are on that ballot from getting in. Uh, the highlight new entry is probably Joe Goosen, who I would not be surprised to see get in at the first opportunity, but gosh, you got folks like Miguel Diaz, Ed Darian, Al Gavin, Harry Gibbs, Kenny Adams. I mean, any number of them could get in. Um, same thing with observers. Our former colleague Mark Taffet is on the ballot for the first time, alongside the likes of uh, Seth Abraham, David Dinkins, Tom Casino, Ross Greenberg, who've been there before. But I am, when it comes to the observers, once again, going to bang the drum for Bob Canobio and John Shepard, founders mm-hmm. of Comfy Box and BoxRec, because they fundamentally transformed the way we consume boxing information. Um, you vote for those three categories, and I think also the female category. Um, yes. Anything leap out at you on your ballots? Well, I think what leaps out most looking at the modern guys uh, is that this is going to be a really fun reveal when the voting is over, because there isn't a single fighter on the ballot that I'm confident gets in this year. It's just so wide open. Now, if I had to single out a few favorites, uh, brain sharing warning for our listeners, the (laughs) names that I have jotted down are all the names that you just mentioned. I would say Tim Bradley, Carl Frotch, the guy that I've been stumping for for several years, Rafael Marquez. You got to figure one or two out of that trio gets in. But, you know, this is in some ways a fun change of pace from the last few years when we knew with near certainty exactly who was getting the call. Um, In the non-participant category, yeah, you mentioned our friend Joe Goose, and he's on the ballot for the first time as a trainer. Uh, Former HBO pay-per-view exec Mark Taffet makes his first appearance on the ballot for observers. I definitely have some tough decisions to make. And basically the only thing I can say with certainty right now is that I am voting for freaking Rafael Marquez. And yeah. uh, everyone listening who also has a vote, uh, our media brethren who listen to this podcast, please rewatch some prime Rafael yep. Marquez and give him some serious consideration. Amen. All right, we finish the show with me issuing your next top five challenge, Kieran. And uh, this idea occurred to me while thinking about new Hall of Fame nominee, Joe Goosen. Mm-hmm. I think we both agree he's an excellent color commentator. Um He wouldn't fit the criteria for this list I'm about to assign you. He just kind of inspired the idea. What I want you to rank is your top five active boxers who you would like to see, or more accurately, who you would like to hear, uh, 
get a shot at commentating when their boxing careers are over. I will disqualify, though, anyone who's gotten a real chance to try already. So Daniel Jacobs, an active boxer, he's called several big fight cards. You can't list him. Our pal Abner Mares, now active again as a boxer, not eligible here because he calls fights for Showtime. Chris Algieri, also ineligible. If someone's had, you know, just one or two random opportunities on some locally broadcast card, we might not even know about it. That's fine. You can include them. Um, But... What I'm looking for is active boxers who you believe would have the potential to be very good color commentators Mm. five or 10 or or however many years from now. I think this could be fun. You know, I think our list could look very different. Um, You shouldn't have to spend much time researching anything, um, which should be conducive to your hectic upcoming travel (laughs) schedule. Uh, I figure you just kind of need to flip through the current rankings and scan for names that leap out at you as... Ah, that guy has smart things to say, uh, or that woman has smart things to say is also an option. Or, you know, that person was a great interview on our podcast. I bet they'd be a good on-air analyst, et cetera, things like that. So ah, what do you cool. think? Yeah, I like that. It's funny. In the past, I've, I've you know, had that kind of thought about some fighters. Oh, they'd be a really good analyst. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of them are actually commentators now. I've long, I long thought that about Tim Bradley, um, uh-huh. for example, uh, and Chris Algieri. Um you know, then there's some that you don't expect that come out and are really good, like Jessica McCaskill. I would never have imagined right. how good she's become. So she and she's the one that was on my mind as d- is is she eligible for this or not? Because she's she's kinda, done quite a lot. I'll she, keep her she off has. She's like, usually she's done a lot. Okay, that's fine. If we want to disqualify her, that's fine. She's usually not like actually calling the fights so much as like sitting in that mm. Sean Porter position. But uh, but yeah, that's fine. We'll we'll strike her. She has been on air at least in some capacity quite a lot. So uh, okay, so people who. If they if they have gotten to dabble in it, at least they are less experienced than Jessica yeah. McCaskill. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she's done enough that we've we've commented a couple of times <laughs> right. on how good she is. So I think that does disqualify her. But no, that's great. I like that. Okay. Um, that that will be a fun and easy one. I can even do that on the plane. That's that's what I figure. Just uh, you know, you don't you just kind of need some set of rankings in front of you so you can see uh, all the names laid out. Or or you may just want to uh, look back at every episode we've ever done of the podcast and uh, mark down your favorite <laughs> interviews. Based basically yeah no exactly exactly all right that will do it for this week's edition of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney we will have a lot to cover next week as we recap the three big fight cards we just previewed and we'll look ahead to the next show box we're not yet entirely certain how we're going to do this as you may have inferred from the hints we've dropped um I'm going to be traveling. I'll be in Reykjavik, Iceland. Eric will be consumed with family matters. I don't know if you want to tell the listeners what those family matters are. Yeah, I think we may have mentioned it previously, but the aforementioned Metallica fan, my son Eli, uh, he's having his bar mitzvah next Saturday, so uh, that'll distract me from, like, Thursday through Saturday at least. Yes, but somehow, some way, in some form, in some time zone, (laughs) the podcast will be back next week. Uh, Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. Streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, all right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.